0: This is another iRaw podcast. There's 26 billion chickens. These chickens are fueling our labor, they're fueling our work, they're fueling our they're fueling that like the the building of the city, the acts of the city through humans eating chickens. So that so the commercial farm even though it's not in the city is part of that urban metabolism because it's producing the food on which the city is produced.
1: Welcome back to The Animal Turn, everyone. We are officially halfway through Season 3. Yay! It's very, very exciting. I've uh, so enjoyed speaking to everyone about urban animals, and I hope that this has been useful for you too. Before getting into the focus of today's episode, I just wanted to say once again, I'm sorry about the uh, audio quality in the last episode. Unfortunately, it was nothing I could avoid. I did get some feedback that said it was really hard to listen to. I hope that you managed to uh, listen to Critica and get from the episode So what you needed. Uh, I'm going to try and work on it a bit more and see if I can polish it up a bit, Uh, but hopefully you enjoyed that episode. In today's episode, I'm going to be speaking to Catherine Oliver, and luckily uh, we had no sound issues this week. There's one or two uh, instances where you're going to hear a chair, uh, chair being moved and stuff, but I think that that's understandable. So uh, Catherine and I are going to be speaking about what is a really interesting and exciting concept, and that is urban metabolism. Now, I've seen the word metabolism floating around all over the place, and I think I know what it means. But speaking to Catherine really helped me to kind of get a better sense of why and how metabolism could be used to not only understand cities, but understand animal relationships with cities. So Catherine is a postdoctoral researcher currently working on an ERC-funded project, Urban Ecologies, at the University of Cambridge, where she is working on urban backyard chickens and chicken keepers in London. Her monograph, Veganism, Animals and the Archives, is coming out soon with Routledge in August, so keep your eyes open for that. She's also a Wiley Royal Geographical Society Digital Archives fellow, researching animals as collaborators and workers in geographical knowledge production. Catherine's other research is in feminist geographies, notably on disbelonging, precarity, and the reproduction of neoliberal hierarchies at academic conferences. We have a really, really great conversation, as you can tell by the length of this episode. It's slightly longer than normal, but we just couldn't stop. Uh, the, The little interesting bits and pieces just kept going and going. So I hope you enjoy the conversation, too. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the Animal Turn Podcast.
0: Hi. Thank you for having me.
1: It's, uh, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, I've spent most of the morning reading some of your writing and yesterday brushing up on urban metabolism. And I've got to say, it's been an absolute delight to read your blog posts and your articles. Uh, you, you're a great writer. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be where you are? Huge question. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. And thank you so much for your your kind words and for reading um, reading those articles. You might be able to remember them better than better than I do. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a geographer. I studied my undergraduate, masters, and PhD in geography. Um, and I started, yes, yeah, started thinking about animals and uh, when I became vegan, basically. Um, so I became vegan in 2013. So this was in the final year of my undergraduate degree. Um, and I became vegan after I watched Earthlings, uh, which in itself is now I see as kind of a problematic film. Um, but at the time, it was kind of really shocked me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went vegan overnight. I was vegetarian before that. So you went vegan
1: brought, overnight?
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But I was I was vegetarian. So I've been brought up vegetarian. Um, and I'd always been a kind of animal-y person. So I sort of have a, an affinity for animals. I love empathy. Um, Really, really, yeah, love animals, uh, but then, so then, when I saw Earthlings, I thought, well, this has just completely uh, undermined my sense of myself as someone who was doing the right mm-hmm. thing by animals, and so I became vegan. And at the time, I was also doing my uh, yeah undergraduate degree, and my f- then future su- PhD supervisor, by my, my now past PhD supervisor, um, was leading a module on mediated geographies. Um, so she was teaching us about um yeah the, the screen uh, media films and so i wrote an essay on kind of vegan media and vegan media geographies um and that's how how it started i sort of didn't know before that that geography or academia could be a space mm-hmm. for these ideas and to to work with these ideas um and that really opened my eyes and that that put me on the path towards um my phd on veganism um and my phd was all kinds of um, sort of happened by. Uh, t- taking opportunities. So I had a plan mm-hmm. for my PhD uh, and any any PhD listeners you, you have might relate to this. I had a plan for my PhD and my research did not end up looking anything like that plan. <laughs>
1: that never <laughs> ever happens to PhD students. <laughs> never. I said it's first-hand experience. I came in knowing exactly what I was going to do and that's what I'm doing. <laughs>
0: uh, I'd love to meet someone who actually did. Um, so yeah, so so I, I took uh, an opportunity to work in the British Library during the first sort of towards the first year, uh, the end of the first year of my PhD in the archives of uh, Richard Ryder, who people might know from coining the term speciesism in Singer's Animal Liberation and being part of that that Oxford group of thinkers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I took this opportunity, having not, never done historical research before, and ended up uh, yet yeah, incorporating a lot of the archive into to my PhD research, uh, as well as doing the kind of project that I was doing at the the library. Um, so yeah th- that took me down this kind of historical route that oh you can bring history into geography and you you can look at things very definitely animal animal history in particular is uh, a absolutely fascinating field um i feel very lucky to have had my eyes mm. open to um and so as i when i left the archives in 2017 i felt like uh, i'd been quite disconnected from animals themselves so i was commuting back and forth between birmingham and london which is about a two-hour train each way. Um, so I wasn't spending oh, wow. a lot of time with any... Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't spending a lot of time with animals or with my companion animals who live with my parents, which is like two hours in the other direction. Uh, that's like two hours north of Birmingham. So, yeah, I, I, it just so happened that when I left the archives, my mum decided to um, rescue some ex-commercial hens. Um, so, yeah, she, she had this coop and she'd... Uh, it, was, it was about a week after. It was a really... Um, strange timing coincidence Mm -hmm. um she got a call basically from she they live in the countryside she got a call and was like oh we've got we've got some chickens um if you if you want some come and get them now so she went and got these six chickens and so then then yeah that was never obviously never never planned either and so I started to um, get to know these chickens write about these chickens think about these chickens and they became such a kind of fundamental part of what I was thinking about and how I was thinking about animals that they became um, kind of a substantial part of my my PhD research. And the main bit, well, the, the middle bit of my PhD research was was interviews with vegans, um, which is the bit i meant to do. <laughs> and so I did also do that bit. Um, but then it, the chickens were the kind of bit that really, really took me. I was really interested in the chickens. Um, and I guess that's also mm. the part that um, led me into the research I'm doing now on uh, urban chickens. So yeah, I guess that's kind of how I, how I got here. <laughs> What a
1: fascinating story. I never even thought of the idea of screen geographies and how that navigates because veganism is also shown in a very particular way on the screen, right? From just constant jabs at vegans in mainstream mainstream films to just how, I guess, mainstream in some respect veganism has become in some documentaries as well. and The kind of narratives that are used when thinking about food and health and what types of bodies are associated with eating a vegan diet? Like everyone thinks that when you're a vegan, you're super healthy and you're super unhealthy at exactly the same time. The, that idea of having those kinds of representational ideas in your mind are really fascinating. Um, I spoke to Paula Akari and she kind of speaks about like epistemic invisibility and how these things are invisible in our in our minds. And I think the screen does something really profound to make them visible um, but yeah, so that you've got that as well as history kind of coming together and the urban all together kind of centering on chickens. And I'm, I'm thrilled that you're, you're focused on chickens in a previous episode as well. I spoke to Patrice Jones. We spoke about uh, chickens as survivors, right? As animals who survive these, uh, these spaces of commodification and industrialization and how they're able to actually survive when they're found in spaces of sanctuaries. So the chickens that your mum got and brought home were they industrial chickens how how did how does it how does it work that someone just calls up your mom and says hey there are some chickens if you want them
0: yeah so she actually did it in in quite a strange way um and not the the typical way, so I can tell you the kind of typical way after I tell mm-hmm. you how she did it. So we we well, I grew up in in a kind of rural area, rural ish area. And my parents moved further north, uh, in in England into a quite a I mean, a pretty rural area. Um and so around there are these kind of um well, down the road where she got from, there's this barn, which is where basically the eggs are hatched and the chicks are fed until they're uh point of lay which is like 16 to 18 weeks i think might have to double check that um so they were basically bred to that point and they were she'd been posting in the local facebook groups basically to be like does anyone know where i can get some chickens does anyone know I can get some chickens um so yeah someone basically just tipped her off that these chickens were going to be being moved and so she she got this call uh or message i don't know um to say, oh well, these chickens going to be moved, so she just gets in the car and goes down there, and it's like, oh, can I have some, some, some of these chickens? Yeah, here you go, his, his chickens. And I, I guess the farmer was sort of like, I don't know why you want these. <laughs> like they're on their way to to a kind of commercial laying farm, but they're not to to the, that farmer. They're not worth that much money. So if my mum's going to pay him a, a like ten pound, fifteen pound, that's more than he's going to get in the selling them to the like. Lay, laying farm if you mm. see what i mean and so this isn't a typical way that people do it and um, this was just a kind of happenstance way that she she was asking around and was basically tipped off and went and got them um so usually um the way that people get ex-commercial or industrial hens is through big rehoming organizations so there's a couple of these in the uk um and they basically rehomed like 60,000 chickens a year or something. Mm. And they have networks with with farmers themselves to buy off them at the end of their um, productive life. So at about 18 months, chickens, um, like commercial chickens laying starts to go down. So it goes from say once a day to every other day. And so they're Productivity isn't profitable anymore, and so usually, if they weren't rehomed, these hens would be sent off to um, be kind of killed and ground up and used for things like chicken nuggets, uh, pet food. Uh, recently, they've started experimenting using these chickens as biofuel. Um, so I don't really know the ins and ins and outs of it, but this is one of the other um, uses of ground spent hen. Um, so instead of doing that, uh, the farmers can work with the rehoming organization to, who collects the hens, uh, take them to various points around the country, and then people uh, reserve hens and pay a small donation to cover like the transport costs and things, um, to, to rehome these ex commercial hens. And the hens, of course, will still lay. They'll still lay an egg pretty much. Uh, lots of them still lay every day for a significant amount of time, but it, I, that's the tip, the, tipping point when it starts to go down. Mm-hmm. And so it's much cheaper um, in that kind of commercial industry to replace the hens than but to why, take that dip in productivity.
1: Why would the farmers, I mean, why would the farmers donate? Are, are they donating or are these rehoming organizations purchasing the hens from them? Like surely in in selling the hens to be rendered for pet food or for chicken nuggets, they're making money still, right? Like every bit of the chicken's body is being used for profit so what is what is in the farmers interests to to give it to these rehoming organizations so
0: so they, they, they pay they pay them um so mm-hmm. the donation that people rehome the hens goes to cover the cost of the farm so they buy them off that them. Um, i assume i'm not sure for more than would they would get for selling them to pet food and i think it also allows the farmers to have a kind of oh you know well we don't their, their, their argument might be they don't necessarily want to send chickens off to be made into pet food, but they don't have a choice because of the kind of pressures of um, that churn, that desire for cheap food, that desire for cheap nature, that desire to keep productivity up, that farmers don't necessarily have a choice in that yeah. uh, and a choice in what they do. And so they they become part of this other um, network that yeah d- disrupts the kind of... Um, metabolic flow um so yeah that, that's kind of the, the work I'm doing at the moment is to understand uh, those flows um mm. and so I'm less kind of interested in that specific bit uh, I'm more interested in what happens after they're rehomed but I do also think yeah well why why are farmers doing that is there yeah and it, I think it is mainly mainly the money and I don't think that yeah I assume they don't necessarily want to send the chickens off to mm. be ground up into pet food and I don't think they're getting a lot of money for that. I mean, I know they're not getting a lot of money that, for that at all. It is that kind of, that Catherine Gillespie's idea of eking, eking capital out of their bodies. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was actually... So this is an alternative.
1: Earlier, even when you said earlier, just how much was being paid for a, a single chicken, uh, what did you say, 10, ten pounds or something? Um, my mind jumped back to, you know, Catherine Gillespie's uh, cow with tag 1389 with just thinking about how you know, economic value and a life are, you know, as long as you're, I guess my brain is, is a, if if someone were to pay £10 for me or for a child or for someone, we would be mm. startled, right? Because there's life, there's something going on there. But the idea of paying £10 for a chicken uh, just seems... So, yeah, normal. this isn't
0: the... Um- yeah, this isn't the cost. Like, that's the cost that my mum paid him. She gave him, like, £10 per chicken. But the chicken is actually worth, like, 12 pence or something in the industrial. Pence. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's something really. And so that's at the time um, when, I, when we got the chickens. This was 2017. I don't know what it would be now, if it would be more or less. But each of those chickens, uh, an egg-laying chicken, was about 12 to 14 pence. That's their kind of economic value, um, which is yeah. just unbelievable. all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're gonna like learning about these birds. I guarantee it.
1: I mean, I guess when you're thinking of the yeah. scales of production, right? You're thinking of just how many animals are going in and how many animals are going out. So, uh, I think you'd written. I think it was you in one of your papers where where you'd noted that seventy percent of bird biomass in the world are chickens. So. Just the weight of all the birds in the world combined, all the birds. And I mean, there are so many different species of birds, you know, everything from a hummingbird to a heron. And seventy percent of that variety are chickens. I mean, that's just staggering. So when you when you think of that number and you think of how many birds that must entail, then yeah, how how could how could chickens ever be Expensive, I suppose. Um, I, I know that chickens are the most slaughtered land animal, um, but I had no idea just how many chickens there were in the world, really. Yeah, and um, there's
0: something like 26, this is from 2019, it's like 25.9, 26 billion chickens alive at any one time. And so that doesn't, when I, when I saw that number, I was like, that's so many chickens. But of course, every day, millions of those chickens are being killed, and it's continually.
1: So mm-hmm. how much
0: like if you think about also that kind of flesh the the dead chicken flesh that, that there's just so many chickens and it's just mm. feeds into well why do people not see chickens as a bird which is something I've been kind of thinking about the last couple of weeks is is it because there's just so many of them
1: yeah. like they're
0: just so ubiquitous so mundane that people just don't see them as a, a bird as, a, as an animal mm. um,
1: well, they I, see I don't them know, as a, a commodity, right? And like mm-hmm. you said, that the, the aggregates of those numbers, if you consider how many are killed on a day-to-day basis, not even thinking about the chicks that constitute, you know, that are part of that, you start adding up those daily numbers of chickens that are killed constantly over, over a period of time. It, it is just staggering, um, those numbers, but something you've you've brought up now, you, you mentioned that you're focusing in on um, metabolic processes, uh, and, and today we're going to be speaking a bit about urban metabolism. And so perhaps we could switch now because we've spoken about reproduction and waste, but maybe we could talk a little bit about what we mean when we talk about urban metabolism. Because uh, I've got a very, I think, basic idea of what metabolism is, right? Anyone who's, you know, looked a little bit at their love handles and thought, oh, I wish I had a faster metabolism. Probably, probably has an inkling of an idea of what metabolism is. So I'm assuming here, when, when, at least in relation to my body, it's how quickly my body uses energy, right? So what, what are we talking about when we say urban metabolism?
0: Yeah, so I, I think it's, it's really interesting. Um, and I think I, I might have said this urban metabolism idea is something that I've been working with on the Urban Ecologies Project that I joined um, last July. So working with urban metabolisms, I, I still feel pretty new to me, but I think the concept is absolutely fascinating. Mm. Um, and it works on on two registers. So a kind of very um, basic or, or simplified uh, definition of urban metabolism would be all of the fuel materials commodities food uh energy that goes into a city's inhabitants uh, to work um live play all those things so it includes the construction and the expansion of the city and the city's kind of daily churn but mm. it's also the waste of the city um and so this this metabolism works on this one level of the urban metabolism which um yeah, there's a kind there's a of Marxist reading of it and then there's also this me- metabolism as a biological, physiological, chemical process mm-hmm. of the body. And so these are working at kind of metaphorical levels and kind of at actual levels. Um, yeah, so
1: if, if I understand you correctly now, what you're saying is on the one level when we say urban metabolism, we're viewing the urban or whichever city we're looking at as having its own distinct metabolism, its own distinct way of bringing in resources, aka food, um, or whatever it needs to function, right? So I guess uh, my metabolism needs more than just food. It needs like the nutrients in those food, but it also needs air and water and all of those things. So if I understand you correctly, on the one level you're saying that if we consider the whole city, an entire city, uh, London for you or Kingston for me or Cambridge or wherever it is, those distinct urban areas have a distinctive metabolism in terms of what they Mm -hmm. consume what they bring in and what they churn out but at a different level the individuals and the groups within there also have bodies that contribute to that so Mm -hmm. my like my body exists within kingston i've got metabolic processes that are part of does is is that is that how those scales are working
0: yeah i think so 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 Urban metabolism problems are things like water supply, sewage, the air. Traditionally, there's the mm-hmm. kind of traditional urban metabolism problems. And so and there's kind of a, a series of different theorizations of urban metabolism. And the first one theorizes is a kind of closed ecological system of inputs and outputs, inputs, transformations, outputs, um, And then this is developed with things like urban political ecology to actually say, well, where Mm. do those inputs and outputs end? Where does the city end? Where does the urban end? The urban isn't a kind of closed system. It's connected to, um, yeah, everywhere. And then it's like, well, those cities aren't isolated. They're also Mm -hmm. connected globally. So do you then um, contain that within a kind of global planetary urbanisation does that then account for, can you have that kind of global urban metabolism? But now as we see things like shooting waste into space, mm-hmm. those borders of where where the planet ends are ever expanding. Um, so yeah, so, that, so on the one hand, there's this urban metabolism that tries to um, see inputs, transformation outputs and measure what a city needs, what a city's using. And this works quite well with that kind of metabolism as a, a physiological Process as a kind of uh, a body eating, a body consuming, transforming, processing, Mm -hmm. and so on. On that side of things, um, the kind of uh, connections between urban metabolism, actual metabolism. Uh, Hannah Landecker theorized this through post-industrial metabolism, and so she looks at the ways. And I'm going to try and get this right, but it might might not be entirely (laughs) remembered correctly. But as I understand it, she theorizes industrial metabolism um, as a kind of input and then there's a kind of factory metabolism. And this is in the body, in the human body. Uh, so the the idea of uh, industrial metabolism is read into uh, the kind of bodily processes of how we're understanding uh, yeah, human metabolism as a kind of input and a factory system uh, output. And that's mm-hmm. the kind of traditional uh, or the earliest understanding of like human metabolism. So that's the kind of traditional <laughs> understanding of Uh, metabolism in the human body and so then over the 20th century um, with experiments with human nutrition which are really actually closely reliant with experiments on chickens metabolism so chickens were at this time like the most uh, experimented on animal in nutritional science a lot of our nutritional knowledge comes from chickens so so through this kind of 20th century we now understand the post-industrial metabolism as it isn't we just eat a transformation and then output but actually our body stores certain things that we eat for longer for more and less time and so mm-hmm. i'm not obviously a biologist so i'm not gonna be able to explain this in the most detailed way um so we we don't just eat transform and output but we store some things we keep some vitamins we can't keep like we can't maintain some vitamins but we can keep kind of stores and signals mm-hmm. within our bodies and so that understanding uh really changes then how we think about. Um, a city or an urban metabolism also as not just in, you know, transform and out. Um, and so I'm still trying to work out how these two things sit together. But I mm. think that it's a really interesting kind of question of, well, what is an urban metabolism? If it is yeah. a measure of those flows or actually is it a metaphor or is it something else or is it, is it both? Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's, yeah, it it's, is- it's a,
1: it is interesting to think through. Um, because yeah, my body definitely keeps some, like I mentioned, the love handles. My body definitely keeps some of those nutrients. I wish it was as easy as throw a pizza and some ice cream in my face and, uh, it just disappears. But alas, it does not just have an output. <laughs> some of it definitely sticks. So, um, so yeah, sorry. Obviously I'm feeling a bit loopy today, but, uh, in thinking about the urban, I like what you said there in terms of thinking through Is it a metaphor or are we speaking about material processes or are we speaking about both? And I think this is where metabolism is really an interesting concept because it it is quite generative, I think, in terms of you could do a discursive analysis in terms of how we've come to understand bodies, like you were speaking about earlier with some industrial ideas, how we've begun to think of bodies as factories with inputs and outputs. But you could also think of the urban materially in terms of water and and. Water and air and food and nutrients that go in, and what those, what what emerges of that, right? CO2, greenhouse gases. These are conversations we're having now. And I think metabolism is a really nice, like fulcrum point for Mm -hmm. thinking through what are really complicated ideas of how cities consume and what that responsibility is. For me, sometimes what's missing in these conversations is responsibility. I mean, urban areas are Mm -hmm. clearly big sites of consumption. Um, and once you recognise what those outputs are, in terms of how a city consumes, what is then the responsibility of that city? And I suppose, mm. I suppose that's more of a political question. Mm. But now, when we think about animals, so you you had said there, you know, chickens were central to thinking through nutrition and what we learned about nutrition. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that, and then maybe also how animals form part of these. These ideas of urban metabolism.
0: Yeah, totally. So I guess that I guess the bit I missed there is the kind of Marxist idea of metabolic rift mm-hmm. um, in understanding urban metabolism, and especially in urban political ecology. And this m- metabolic rift is basically a separation of humanity from nature. Um, so it's that very traditional ge- geographical ideas of how has humanity or society been separated from nature. Um, and, and to understand those kind of through capitalism, obviously, and the, the kind of commodification of nature is that, um, yeah, that, that that's the kind of other side of metabolism is, is rifted or shifted um, that that ma- that relationship of consumption. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, the chicken in, in nutrition, I guess I guess the reason is that the chicken is quite small and so they're quite easy to work with. Um, but yeah, in in the the early twentieth century, when they began these kind of experiments on human nutrition, chickens were chickens have quite similar, uh, I guess. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> like me- metabolic imagine. processes to, to, to humans. Oh, okay, I don't know you. where I was going. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of <laughs> metabolic processes to humans, and so the chicken was experimented really? on to understand human nutrition, and this is what I was. I think we wrote in that. Um, more than human experiments with chicken metabolism piece. Um, We were trying to understand how how and why. And so this kind of history of experimenting on chickens to understand what what a chicken needs and what a human needs, these two uh, histories of agricultural science and and human nutritional science kind of, um, yeah, developed side by side. And so the the reason that um, chickens become interested is not only because they are doing this kind of, so we have the the broiler chicken and we have the layer chicken, and so this is quite an important distinction in thinking about um, metabolism uh, and nu- mm-hmm. nutrition. So a broiler chicken is is obviously bred to grow big and to be fleshy uh, and to have yeah yeah to be big and fleshy and to eat and eat and eat and get bigger fast um, and to get to get as big as possible as fast as possible. Whereas for a laying chicken that's slightly different. Um, so the laying chicken is is bred to Uh, Yeah, produce as many eggs Mm. as possible. And so their, um, metabolic labor is to, uh, yeah, reproduce, but also as in these, these kind of experiments with chicken metabolism, the egg is is, it's kind of rudimentary it's kind of it's kind of strange because you think it's technologically advanced but on the same hand it's not that it's quite rudimentary so if if a chicken eats more of a particular kind of vitamin there will be more of that vitamin in its uh, in their eggs that they lay Mm -hmm. so one of the experiments was with vitamin d um so so they fed supplements vitamin d supplements to laying hens uh pellets like diets and their eggs then have more vitamin d when they Mm -hmm. when they lay them and this happens with can happen with like omega-3 as well and a couple of other things. And so it makes it when when humans are eating those eggs, they're getting more of those vitamins. But through the chicken's metabolic labor, those vitamins are easier to absorb than they, if to the human body that mm. if they were um, like the supplements were given to us directly. So these chickens are transforming material because, and it's because, I mean, it's because they're an animal, you know, it's because they have similar um, mm-hmm. needs in their food to humans that this is, um, that, that that then becomes easier for a human body to absorb. Yeah. So then we become really, you know, we're really entangled in e- each other's, not only lives and spaces, but in each other's cellular uh, kind of biological makeup. Chickens are doing this labour for us to be able to eat um I mean, if we if we eat eggs, of course, that so that to be more easily absorbed, and so this this can kind of uh, attend to problems of undernutrition, um, overnutrition, but with you know um, lack of, of vitamins. Um, so yeah, th- this is the kind of use of uh, chicken metabolisms. Uh, yeah, over the last century, well,
1: that's really uh, you know it's fascinating to think through what the implications are of that because you think of how. Health discourses around uh, eggs or chicken eggs have proliferated, right? You need to eat eggs because they're high in X or they're high in Y, but actually they could be high in those because of, uh, you know, what, what is it being actively fed to them so that they're high in that uh, Similar to how, I guess, you would fortify bread. Instead of using an oven, you're actually using the chicken's body to fortify a product but for human consumption, uh, not necessarily thinking about the chicken's own metabolic needs. So, so, that really, I think, helps me to understand kind of these different scales of what you're talking about. On the one hand, you've got a body that is literally turning something into something else. Um, but on the other hand, you've got this bigger urban area. You know, th- that is to some extent, things that are coming in. But then I'm also thinking in your your paper, you spoke a little bit about waste. And we spoke in the beginning also about how many birds there are. And I think this is also part of the ecology, right? Where Where do the bodies go? So yes, and maybe is that part of the metabolism as well as humans eat them and it's a constantly changing, evolving thing? Or is there more to it than that?
0: Totally. Yeah. The, the waste is totally part of the kind of urban metabolism of the city. So it's figured into those. So as, as a kind of inter or transdisciplinary uh, idea in mm-hmm. a kind of material systems flow, uh, urban metabolism, waste is factored into that, um, metabolism of the cities. So the metabolism is what goes in, what's, what are the processes and flows and also what comes out and then where does that kind of come back in, um, and so one of the ways that I've found this quite interesting is how um, uh, this idea of a closed circular system, you know, like this is what, what we're told is that they're so efficient, um, chicken, commercial chicken farm is so mm-hmm. efficient um, that everything goes back in. Um, so so there's no waste. Well of, well, of course, there is waste. So the idea that chickens, even if they're not being rehomed, say so let's say, um, the, so the chicken is one of the, um, it's like the most, fastest growing meat um across the world there's 26 billion chickens these chickens are fueling our labor they're fueling our work they're fueling our they're fueling that like the the building of the city the acts of the city through humans eating chickens so that so the commercial farm even though it's not in the city is part of that urban metabolism because it's producing the food that on which the city is produced and so the, the waste from this, say, you know, if it's redirected into uh, chicken nuggets or whatever, becomes this um, circular or, or, or mm. e- efficient economy. But this then ignores all of the kind of pollution of the um, chicken farm, the air pollution, the ammonia, the, the all the kind of other uh, kind of, yeah, uh, I can I can't, not material it's not tangible you know it's not material you can't see yeah. that but of course it's there and so then you have also this this uh i mean the prediction basically that um avian farms are reservoirs for pathogen pathogens yeah. so the next pandemic will be coming from a chicken farm that they they think you know yeah. be that kind of avian uh flu but you can't see these things because you, all you can see is oh that waste is the chicken bodies um and that's you know that's the kind of the easiest bit to sell. Oh well, we we re- re- redirect that that comes back in. Yeah, that becomes ground spent hen, which is used for all these um, yeah various
1: things. So so the chicken's body itself is being used to sustain the metabolic processes of humans who are in effect reliant on and living in cities. But at the same time, it's simple, I guess it's too simple to stop the process there, to say that that's where the metabolic process ends, right? A human eats a chicken and finished. Mm-hmm. No, there's there's more to the making of the chickens uh, in terms of where they are, but also what's produced. But why why then use Urban metabolism here as a concept instead of just urban ecology. Uh, you know, is is this not just speaking at an ecological level, saying okay, mm. all of these different processes operate and function? How does is it because the body is so central to analysis, or what what is it that makes urban metabolism a particularly useful concept here for understanding some mm. of these multi species relationships?
0: I think for me, it's, it is in, in eating. And I've been um, absolutely fascinated mm. by eating for a long time. And so it's not just the human eating the chicken, but what's the chicken eating? You know, the chicken's eating these fortified um, fortified feed,
1: mm. which is then
0: eaten by the human. And then eating itself isn't just a material um, thing. It's a political thing. It's an ethical yeah. thing. It's a, um, yeah, and this, so this, this kind of comes from the work of Anne-Marie Mal, who's just got a new book out called eating in theory, which I'm sort of working my way through, but she had an essay, I think it was in 2013 called I eat an apple. And in this essay, she basically talks through subjectivity in eating and how, when, when a body eats, there's always, you're never in control of that eating. So there's mm-hmm. always these processes going on within you that are totally out of your control. These processes of digestion, what is kept, what is uh, flushed away what is stored what is not stored and so she she talked about in the, this apple she um in 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 her youth that the, the granny smith apples that she used to eat came from chile and this was under pinochet's re- regime and so she says even even like 20 years later 30 years later whenever she was writing when she eats an apple she still finds this distasteful she she enjoy a granny smith apple because of the political meaning that she's consuming um so so she kind of is so she, on the one hand, she's got all these processes going on within her beyond mm-hmm. her control, and then this kind of political distaste for it, and yet this idea that your stomach can be somewhere that transforms uh, on on a kind of cellular level, but you can make choices mm-hmm. about what is in your kind of stomach. So liberation beginning in the stomach, which is an idea from kind of um, activists in, I, I guess, the the eighties and nineties that li- liberation can begin in the stomach Mm -hmm. and so for me that then really that kind of material process that political process of eating it moves across scales so so well what we're consuming what we're metabolizing what we choose to metabolize and not choose to metabolize is at once a choice and something beyond our control Um, and that's the bit where it's beyond our control kind of scales up to this idea of urban metabolism what the city's eating what the city's keeping what the city's Mm. spitting out is not within our control so I think it travels quite well it scales yeah. quite well the idea of metabolism and like for me it's really that kind of eating
1: mm. um, I like, yeah I mean, really like eating is fascinating yeah because if you, if you start to center because so far we've really spoken I think you know about chickens and humans and how their metabolic processes are uh i guess entangled with one another one another both politically economically and and spatially right but i think that if you're foregrounding eating and what those meta- me- metabolic processes tell us about relationships um and about the urban then this opens up a whole bunch of actors that you could consider right so if you were to now consider i don't know coyotes uh, or or raccoons uh, using a an urban metabolic Lens, you know, and this is now stepping outside of, I think, of the commercial realm of things. Where yes, we we've seen now, you know, chickens are part of these industrial farms. Uh, humans eat them; it's part of this like capital process. But what would it mean to switch the focus of urban metabolism to look at wildlife or to? Mm. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you've if, if if you've ever given that some thought. Like how how could this be used to understand the urban worlds of, of animals?
0: Yeah, totally, um, because I guess that's the thing, isn't it, right? So if you have an urban metabolic idea, you're like, well, what are the inputs, outputs, who are the actors? Mm. That's very much through a, an anthropocentric framework, mm. and the the animals come into that as eaten.
1: Mm. But actually
0: the city's residents are dogs, cats, foxes, depending where you are, birds of all kinds, bugs. Um, and so these animals are also part of the city. They're also eating uh metabolizing processing outputting digesting in the city Mm -hmm. they are um this kind of idea of the more than human city isn't just uh yeah i mean they're they're there and they're they're also engaging in these processes so what do what does it mean if we look at the city through the kind of um wildlife's metabolism and then i guess it comes with those histories of how um what am i trying to say which animals are in in the city, right? So mm-hmm. when we think of urban uh, animals, we think I don't know. Traditionally, I guess if you if you weren't someone interested in animals or you weren't someone interested in the urban, and someone said, "Oh, what do you think of urban animals?" You'd be like, "Well, there aren't any animals in the city. Mm. Um, animals are for the countryside." But of course, that's not true. You know, like when I think of my time in the countryside versus in the city, I've seen way, way, way more uh, animals and lived near and known way more wild animals in the city than I ever knew in the countryside. In a sense, the countryside is sort of devoid of those really close relationships with animals yeah. where you're kind of on top of each other and you get to know each other and you're like, oh, there's the badger, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, so, and you, you get to recognise individual animals, not just species animals in the in the city. Mm-hmm. And so you have, but how did those... I guess what I'm trying to say is how did those animals come to be urban animals? Were they, are they choosing to be in the city or were they overtaken uh, Mm -hmm. by the expansion of the city or were they displaced or do they come to the city to eat and then leave? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think this is what's so interesting because there's obviously so many different cities with so many different animals. And there was a documentary that I watched a couple of years ago. So I hope I don't misrepresent this because I did watch it a long time ago about um, cities as nature's new wild. It was on the Mm -hmm. the BBC. Um, And so they had kind of a series of episodes. One was on um, urban animals who were residents. So they lived in the city um, like foxes. um, Yeah, I think otters was one of the, the case studies. and yeah, I think and, the altars kind of in crop.
1: Singapore are quite famous. I think they come Yeah, Yeah, really I think often. it was the altars mm-hmm. in Singapore. Yeah.
0: So they had this, this, this one episode on residents, and then they had one on commuters, which were animals kind of coming into the city, uh, eating and leaving. Mm-hmm. And particularly this was brown bears, I think, in North oh, America. Wow. Um, and then the other one was the residents, commuters, and outcasts, I think, was the third one. And so this is animals who live kind of on the the outskirts of the city periphery, and maybe they yeah. kind of just stay in that periphery. Um, and I think that might have been like dolphins was in that episode. And oh. I can't remember where, but it was really interesting. Um, and so when we think of urban animals or the city expanding, it's if killing animals, like uh, Nigel thrift has got a new book out on killer cities yeah. and how cities are built on the kind of violent, uh, the deaths of animals, the, the, the howling cries of, of animals or something. I think him and uh, Asher Min say in, in one of their cities books. But actually, the, the city is also a kind of a playground of new ways of living um, mm. and a playground of kind of um, how humans and animals might live together in the future. And so over the last few weeks, I've, I've just been just for my own kind of um, understanding of how I got here. I've been writing a kind of love letter to um, the urban animals that I've known. And so it started when I, moved, I grew up, like I said, in the countryside. And I moved to Birmingham, which is like the second biggest city in the UK, in 2011 like 10 years mm-hmm. ago for my my first uh, my undergraduate degree and my, my like it sounds a bit uh, like I was really lonely and sad and I was a bit lonely <laughs> and sad for reasons. but one of my closest friends was this badger um, and so I did have human friends as well but I didn't particularly enjoy my undergraduate degree I was very out like a fish out of water I suppose for an animal uh an animal analogy I didn't really um fit in with the kind of people that were at that um, university and the kind of people that I lived uh, with in the student halls. So this badger became my friend <laughs> and um, I used to stand outside at night and the badger would come and, uh, and visit uh, and kind of walk through and he lived kind of behind the student halls that I lived in and this badger would, would come through and he'd sit with me for a bit and if I was lonely I'd talk to the badger I'd be like hey what are you to?" and then I'd watch him kind of eat some some stuff and then kind of lollop off <laughs> Um, I love this badger. Um, I still love this badger. But I'd grown up in the countryside, which is traditionally where badgers, there's very few urban badgers in in, in the UK. In fact, there's like these ones in Birmingham and some in Bristol. And so I was so lucky I'd never seen a badger before alive. i would seen many dead badgers. Um, and this badger kind of welcomed me to the city. I'd never lived in a city before. It was so scary for me. It was such a big city as well. And looking back now, like having lived in Birmingham for 10 years, it now seems like a tiny city. But this badger welcomed me to the city. It was, it was my friend. Mm. And then over the years, other animals, when I was having a tough time in the city, became my friends. There was a fox um, that used to sleep in the garden of, of, of my house a few years later. When I was having a bit of a rough time, I'd just go. And sometimes this fox would just go and sit there. And we'd talk. Um, a few years after that, there was, um, I lived in like a top floor of a block of flats and on the roof opposite, um, gulls nested. And so I got to, it was another, another lonely time in my life during my PhD. And I would, I got to watch these, these gulls nest and kind of mm. grow up um, really close. I mean, they were, they were right by me. Um, and it's not an, a site in the city that I think people see or think of is these, no. these nesting Birds, and in Birmingham, there's also peregrine falcons that nest in in one of the towers.
1: Well, Um, it is just—it's really interesting what you say—is how many intimate relationships you can have with animals mm -hmm. in the city versus outside of the city, uh, because we have kind of created, and I think I read it about a week or two ago, um, we've kind of created this idea of you know an out there where animals are really prolific Mm -hmm. and they're abundant. And uh, increasingly, coming back to what you were saying about like screens and screen representations, there are increasing calls for, you know, nature documentaries to actually represent this a bit more clearly, that kind of the idea of an idyllic, untouched nature where wildlife is abundant and there are no fences and roads on which they are dying is actually a dishonest media that's not really showing kind of these relationships. And of course, a lot of what's out there or out of the city is actually farmland, right? That's used to sustain the city. So, so to come back to these these metabolic processes and a lot of that farmland in, you know, certainly here in, in North America is uh, monocrop culture, right? Singular foods mm. that are being oftentimes used to feed the animals that we are eating. Um, so yeah, really, and, and in those environments, Certainly, there are there are very few animals that are. I mean, guaranteed mm-hmm. there are tons of animals running through the fields and in the trees, um, but you don't get that kind of sense of oh, out there there are just animals everywhere. But when you walk down the street, if you open your eyes, uh, as you've as you've clearly done in your stories, you know whether whether it's a fox or a badger. I mean, how how lucky, um, or a gull, or a pigeon, or a, you know a, a rat or a dog or whatever it is or whoever it is you see in the city, there mm-hmm. are. Abundant animals in the cities, and I think, you know, you, you spoke about you know the, the political nature of eating that it's political, mm. and I think it becomes really interesting when we start to think about that in terms of animals as well. What 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 emerges when I start to say, okay, what does the act of hanging a bird feeder mean? So I'm supplying food to mm. a bird. Um, or birds, specific birds are flying to this specific city to eat. What what does that mean? At what point is this ecology? Or or how do I use urban metabolism and the ways in which they eat? Because mm. this is what you said, right? Um, how do I use their eating as a way in which to understand their preferences and their choices and why they're in the city in the first place? Uh, really important, I think. Mm.
0: I think this is this is a slight tangent, but you've just set me to, to thinking. You know, we we live uh, certainly uh, people of of kind of my uh, age bracket live very precarious lives in the city, and so we rent. We don't own houses. We're at the the kind of whim of of landlords and the whim of the market to be able to afford to live. So when I when I lived in a flat, I didn't have the as much space, and so when I then moved to a house, I did feed the birds and I welcomed them in kind of intentionally to eat there and in the in the in the flat I guess that the animals were welcomed through the, the waste but not intentionally mm. um welcomed so so animals like rats would be attracted to the waste in the city and foxes I quite often saw a fox um, bin diving like on the road opposite and so we have like when I when I lived in in Birmingham then feeding the birds and inviting the birds and Speaking to the cats and speaking to the, the the animals that visited and that I was choosing or inviting to be part of my community, there's always a kind of temporal stop on that, which is as a re- for people who are precarious, for people who. Um, and a lot of this kind of was, was through the, the times of the pandemic. We mm-hmm. had more time, or or I had more time, not everyone had more time, to feed the birds, to wait for the birds, to look at what they were doing, mm-hmm. um, to look at the other animals, to to like plant flowers for the bees to eat yeah. is pollination eating. <laughs> I guess I think so. so. Um, certainly.
1: Well it's it's part of their metabolic is, processes, right? They're collecting definitely, their definitely. resources. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But this kind of urban the, the urban space is not a space that many people can afford to be in in the u k certainly um with the kind of housing market um, younger people, poorer people, precariously employed people, yeah. all of this within a kind of a neo-liberalizing, um capitalist uh, ideology, so then we build these communities, but we can 't stay in them so so we yeah. build these human and more than human communities, but we can 't stay in them we we're, we're at the whims of of kind of landlords to um allow us to stay in them and so so I know in, in one or two episodes you were talk- ago you were talking about the, the right to the the mm-hmm. more than human rights to the city but actually do we have a, a right to that that more than human city do we have a right to building lasting um communities where we do nourish one another wh- across human and animal mm-hmm. um and whether that comes through that act of I think people feed animals a lot as a, as a kind of community act mm-hmm. a kind of political community act which um, I guess it's the thing we know about animals. We know they like to eat. Yeah. <laughs> so when you part a that, it's a kind of political... We, yeah. Yeah. And so it's that first move in in building a more-than-human community. But in, in the city and in the kind of uh, neoliberal city, we don't have the... Um, lots of us don't have the kind of financial means to stay in that community we we jump around a lot like
1: mm. I think
0: during the during my PhD I moved which was five years long I moved house about 10 times
1: wow. um
0: so even across the city I mean it was all in the same city but the uh, the local communities of animals were so different um that mm-hmm. I never got to to really live with them for a long time and so then you live in this kind of feeling this kind of precarious life um which obviously then uh, for me, <laughs> anyway, is another kind of empathy with the, uh, the urban animal and with animals in their kind of precarity in the city.
1: That's such a powerful idea. Uh, what did you say there? Do we have the right to even create a more than human um, space? Mm. Because, yeah, I, I think, you know, just what a, what a really powerful sentiment because building community takes time. Uh, is, is what you're saying here right it takes time it takes resources mm-hmm. it's one thing to say that we all eat but who do we eat with uh how are we mm-hmm. eating how is eating being enabled what are the tensions with being able to eat you know mm-hmm. feeding animals is not uh it's it's also political like you said some animals we readily accept that you'll feed like birds but then if you start feeding foxes people might get upset with you why why is it okay to feed one and not an not the other. How how have these kinds of feeding relationships emerged, um, and what are the implications of engaging in them? Right. Uh, to what extent is this paternalistic? Where we say, okay, no, don't feed animals because then they become habituated to us, and then it could be more dangerous for mm. them, or do feed animals because their environments are disappearing, the, their their access to food is disappearing. Um, to what extent should we close or not close off our waste when it forms part of the diets of a variety of animals, uh, and also increases their cholesterol? Right, the fact that squirrels are dying of high cholesterol mm. is is just profound. But what you say there about kind of the tenuousness, the the which communities have the luxury of sitting and contemplating these multi species relationships. Um, and I, and I don't think that's to necessarily disavow. I think there are a lot of communities who who are transient, but who have managed to build really, in a couple of episodes, we've spoken about the significance of street dogs, uh, particularly in, in Indian cities, and how street dogs have formed their own relationships with particular people, but not centered around food. And I think that this is where urban metabolism is really fascinating, is what happens when we start to center food not just for humans but for a variety of animals, and when we speak about veganism, uh, to come all the way back to the beginning of the episode, you know we're, we're speaking about human food choices, which is political certainly, and it has massive implications ecologically uh, in terms of the outputs of the city and the inputs of the city, one hundred percent. But what happens when we also start to center the eating needs of animals uh, and the diversity they need in the variety of spaces? What trees get planted, what mm. spaces get left alone and not bulldozed because it's a feeding ground or whatever it is. Yeah, uh, it's really interesting. Uh, before I switch to your, your quote, I thought uh, in the beginning of the episode, you kind of hinted at the significance of zoonosis in thinking through urban metabolism and some of these relationships. And I know that you've written now a little bit about chickens and, and the pandemic. And kind of how this is being used to recreate urban imaginaries and and that maybe through thinking through food, we can reimagine the world differently. Could you perhaps tell us just a little bit about uh, that work and and what you've found?
0: Yeah, totally. So um, part part of my work here on the urban ecologies project is with rehomed um, chickens, and so urban what would you call it? Backyard chicken keeping has been on the rise in the UK and North America for at least 10, 15 years. Um, And so there's, there's a a kind of big study in 2000 or an important paper in 2012 on uh, the kind of rise in in urban chicken keeping, but Mm -hmm. relatively there's not a huge, uh, a huge amount of work on like that, uh, that um, backyard chicken keeping from a kind of urban, urban perspective. Uh, There's lots of work on chickens as, Um, kind of reservoirs of disease and industrial chickens and all those things. Um, So, yeah, so during the COVID-19 pandemic in the first lockdown in in the UK, which was kind of March, end of March, I think, 2020, there was like a huge, huge surge in people buying chickens for their backyards um, and buying or rehoming chickens through the organisations that I talked about about, about a little bit before. So Mm -hmm. there was huge, huge demand for chickens and so the reason that there was a de- demand for chickens was on the one hand, lots of people who'd thought kind of, oh, you know, had like some chickens now had the time they were furloughed or they were working from home. Um, so they had the time um, to get some chickens, but they also, the other reason was that people thought they would have, so we had um supermarket. Well, we didn't have supermarket shortages in the UK, but we had stockpiling. Um, so there was a threat, like a, a threat of, shortages of food mm-hmm. there was never realized there weren't actually shortages of food but because people kind of thought there might be they stockpiled food mm-hmm. and kind of hoarded food um from the supermarkets and so the supermarket shelves were empty um there was oh. there was nothing in the supermarket shelves um and so people thought you know if we get chickens they lay an egg every day and so we'll have a, a fresh supply of eggs um to eat um and I guess people who might not have had chickens before, I don't know, there's not like a, if you have two chickens, you're getting two eggs a day maximum. You're not getting like a, a six pack of eggs a day uh, a maximum. So so yeah, during, during COVID-19, people took to urban chicken keeping in, in huge numbers. Um, people really, really sort of saw it as a, an opportunity, I suppose, to live with animals in, in different ways, to live with chickens in different ways uh, in the city. And that kind of fundamentally reshapes um, the city is a space for chickens or not for chickens, mm-hmm. and this is sort of done in that vision of the good life. Um, th- this kind of oh, we're we're bringing chickens into our, our our space. We're bringing a bit of country into the city. We can have mm-hmm. the the best of both worlds. Um, but at the same time as this, in which I think I think I write in the paper. I've not actually read it for <laughs> for a couple of months. Um, but at the same time as this, chicken processing workers in slaughterhouses um across uh, north america europe and the uk were being put basically in the, in in huge amounts of risks of getting covid19 um there was very little protection there was no ppe there was no um you know there was no support for um slaughterhouse workers processed mm-hmm. plant workers during those initial um i mean still not and and i think it's uh the, the the kind of the, the backyard chicken can't exist without the the slaughterhouse. These two things are in, in relation. Certainly the rehomed chicken mm. does not exist without the kind of um industrial chicken farming. Exactly, um, yeah. So these these slaughterhouse works were and I think I talk about a bit in the paper, these chicken um processing plant workers, their bosses were like taking bets on how many people would um get sick with COVID nineteen. They had like a I don't know what you call it—whip round um, kind of bets mm-hmm. on on the lives of slaughterhouse workers. And so this is, you know, in our in our activism, in our animal empathies, it does not stop at the, the animal. Because mm-hmm. look at the who's being affected. You know, um, we also have to have solidarity for these um, the, the process plant workers that have been put on the firing line. They're not well paid. You wouldn't be doing that work unless you had to do that work you know Mm -hmm. they're not well treated they're not well paid they're not um they weren't protected at all and they are also seen as totally disposable as humans and so so i think the the families of a couple of the workers who who died of covid19 are taking a kind of uh, a legal case against the Mm -hmm. the managers of the of the um, big corporations so yeah so yeah this kind of um Chickens have a very close relationship to pandemics, and sometimes in, or kind of zo- zoonosis um, as, and usually it's as a kind of re- yeah reservoir of of pathogens. But also in in COVID nineteen, we had these two kind of other emerging ways that people mm. saw this pandemic not as a reason to like get because of course this is a, a, a zoonotic disease, right? COVID nineteen, and you'd think well, um, the logic would be oh, keep me away from from the food animals. They're <laughs> they're the ones. Causing this um, in quotation marks, but actually there was a real desire for people to get to know their food differently. This, these, to um, reconnect with their food in a different way. And then on the other hand, the the kind of yeah the the dirty workers were put in the, in the firing line. They were never essential workers in the same way that um, other other uh, industries were essential workers. But of course they they were essential workers mm. to keep food.
1: Yeah, I mean- um, the biggest, the biggest outbreak in in Canada was at a meat packing factory, um, and not just in Canada. I think it was in in North America. You know, north of one and a half thousand people. You know, the massive at, at one factory, which is just to say, yeah, our, our bodies, pathogens can pass between our bodies, right? And mm-hmm. and like you said, you know, chickens are, are vectors for disease, but they're they're not really, as you, as you're pointing to. It's not that. They are in and of themselves it's the conditions at which they're expected to mm-hmm. to work to be to eat to produce um the the massive expectations on on their bodies so that uh you know consumerism can continue capitalism can continue mm-hmm. and as you pointed to earlier the you know the urban can can continue as long as the urban and those living within cities are demanding chicken, even if we don't see where it comes from um Chickens will be crammed into to sheds and 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 other organisms will will find a way to to survive and thrive um, but yeah, in terms of these backyard hens, I just think it 's fascinating to just think through we 've got like you said earlier this imaginary that there are no animals in the urban, but actually there are many, and sometimes that imaginary extends to maybe some wild animals, but not necessarily to domestic food animals. But the, I mean, I can't remember the numbers you mentioned, but just the the, the staggering numbers of, of chickens and I think increasingly pigs that are found in cities does make us start to question, what does this mean? Does this mean that slaughter is going to take place in the city again? Um, or is it taking place in the city again? Uh, what are the implications of that? What questions should we be asking is this really disrupting these bigger industries, or is it another avenue for generating profit? Mm-hmm. Um, all really difficult questions, but I think urban metabolism does give us, um, you know, something to work with here. Uh, like you said, if we centre the politics of eating, um, mm-hmm. could we hear your your quotes as we as we start to wrap up? It would be great to hear what you've got for us.
0: Yeah, so I, I've, I've got two quotes that kind of one speaks to, to the, the kind of urban or bigger metabolism, and one speaks to the chicken. Um, mm. So the first one is, is from Jason Moore in his article, Metabolic Rift or Metabolic Shift. And he, this is just like one line that I think really sums up, I think, a lot of the things we've talked about. So he writes, Metabolisms are always geographical. Capitalist relations move through, not upon space, which is to say through and not upon nature as a whole. So that's the first one. And the second one is about chickens. And this is from Les Beldo in his paper, Metabolic Labour, Broiler Chickens and the Exploitation of Vitality. And this one's longer. (laughs) So chickens labour at both the macrobiological and microbiological levels by eating, rooting and laying eggs on one hand. And by metabolising feed into eggs or animal flesh flesh protein on the other. They have the additional burden of enduring their own metabolic labour of constantly feeling the effects of the cellular processes within them that generate eggs at the rate demanded by capital. For a layer hen, this means producing and laying as much as one egg per day and experiencing its adverse effects.
1: You know, yeah, I mean, we didn't even speak about that, really. Um, just what do these processes mean for, for the chicken themselves? Wow, those are, those are great. Um you, yeah, you mentioned the metabolic rift earlier as well. Um perhaps you could just explain it a bit more. So you, you said it's part of Marxian thinking. Um maybe if, if you could just unpack that slightly for, for me so that I understand exactly what you're you're saying.
0: Yeah, so so the reason I chose I chose that quote is to come back to this kind of um bigger idea of 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 metabolism not being just in the body. It's kind of scalable. So so Marxian um metabolic rift, and I hope I'm going to get this right. So we have thinkers like Jason Moore and John Bellamy Foster who are trying to use M- Marx's idea of metabolic rift to understand capitalism, nature, relations. And so in that quote, Jason Moore's moving from the idea of humanity and nature to humanity in nature. Um, so there was this traditional idea that in environmental mm-hmm. sociology in particular that Marxism and environmentalism were at odds with one another. Um, and that Marx wasn't interested in the, and I'm not, um, uh, I'm not a, a very well-trained Marxist, uh, theorist or anything. So if I get this wrong, that's, um, uh, someone can correct me, I guess. Um, so there's this idea that, that, um, Marx and uh, Marxism and av- environmentalism were at odds. Um, uh, but actually Marx had this theory of meta- metabolic rift, which basically he said work to separate humans, human production from nature. But of course everything that we d- all that all the kind of human labor is working on nature and in nature to transform nature into um commodities you know um yeah so so it's, so there isn't um yeah th- this rift is something that isn't actually there its is to move humanity away from nature so that we yeah. can work on it and make it cheap and so Jason Moore talks about making cheap nature yeah um, and making cheap nature cheap food cheap labor um Yes yeah, so, so this rift and actually this is um, something that's quite interesting to come back to, to veganism um, so the metabolic rift is to separate humans from nature humans from the soil and a couple of years ago, I was doing some some research in the vegan society's archives online and you can access these online they're pretty cool actually all their back issues of their publications and in the earliest um, the earliest kind of founding members of the vegan society so not the earliest vegans but of that kind of organized group mm-hmm. of the Vegan Society were absolutely fascinated with soil um, and with the detriment to soil uh, of uh, animal agriculture, of our separation from soil and nature because of um, ag- agriculture and animal agriculture separating us from working the land, from being part of the land. Um, yeah, yeah, there was this really interesting idea that I've not quite pieced together how it fits together, mm-hmm. um, but these these earliest vegans were really interested in um, soil quality, in self-sufficiency um, and in, yeah, kind of uh, similarly in, in returning to nature and that nature we've been separated from through animal agriculture, whereas I guess a Marxist would argue it was through capitalism that we've been mm. separated from from nature. Yeah, so, so this idea of um, society versus nature, human versus mm. nature is the kind of bread and butter of, of all Or lots of geographical theory uh, and more shifts this into being humanity in nature and what does that mean um if we're not we are part of nature we are in it we're not just working on it
1: yeah i I love metabolism (laughs) as a way of grounding us in that right because we've spoken a lot about waste and expulsion and what we're talking about here oftentimes is poo and food and um how is our how is our eating and our pooping and our sweating and our living and our breathing Uh, connected not just ecologically for the environment as a whole but for us as societies as communities what does our our eating and our pooing and our being mean firstly and and whose eating and pooing matters right like Mm -hmm. I guess that's what it comes down to and certainly I think the eating and pooing of the city matters right um uh, everywhere matters but the city in particular has just become such a big site of consumption that if we're not looking at who and how people and animals are consuming in them i think we're, we're missing a big mm. conversation so i really love that um you know metabolic rift kind of brings these together But me- metabolism in general is a really generative idea um so thank you so much for for sharing your insights with with me today i I'm really excited about this. Uh, I guess it's also sometimes difficult to not think, like when I'm eating, I'm not thinking about my my metabolism, right? Mm. I guess to harken back to my love handles, I might be thinking, oh, is this going to carry on with the love handles? But I'm not really thinking about those internal processes. I'm just thinking about, oh, I'm hungry and I'm going to eat. And I think what this form of analysis that you're talking about here highlights is both like you said, the scalar, like the geography, it it highlights both what's going on inside the, the, the small processes, the gut, the bacteria, all of those things, that, that you can scale that up to a global scale as well in terms uh, of considering how these are connected. It can seem overwhelming, but it's also really just exceedingly exciting. <laughs> all right.
0: Totally. And I guess the the other thing is we're in this kind of urbanizing age. So, as it's relatively soon, right? That most of the world are going to live in cities, um, so that's what's why this becomes particularly important. In in well, where's where's going next if we're living in this urbanizing age? Mm. Um or what what how do we understand the cities? And we're going to have however many mega cities and you know all these things, and then the the kind of this idea of actually in in these kind of through capitalism's um, demands on our time that those kind of precarity that we've been mm. we talked a little bit about earlier. Um, The separation from land, we don't have the space to plant, grow food um, for for most of us all the time. And so there's also these these questions of, well, um, how's that kind of capitalist churn of the city and of our lives separated us from eating? Like, why don't we think about eating Mm. in in these ways? And it's because, I mean, for most of us, we just don't have the time. Um, Mm. And when you see things like the lockdown, banana breads and the lockdown sourdoughs people had the time to get their hands into eating in yeah. again um that we don't really have which opens a, another kind of set of, of questions around the city but i'm not gonna get into them
1: now. no i think i think it's so important like i think for for me prior to becoming vegan i don't think i really looked at anything i didn't look at the back of a package i didn't think about what i was eating and there was a uh, in the political shift, there was an awareness, not just to, you know, now I'm far more aware of a variety of different issues with Mm relation to my food, not just uh, animals. And that kind of awareness that being made to pause a little bit when I'm in the store and I'm the one standing in the aisle, flipping the package over and looking at the ingredients. Like it takes me a lot longer than, you know, now once you know what you can buy, it's one thing. But in the early days, it was definitely a massive process of, of learning, um, which when you're busy and you don't know what to look for, you you might just not mm. think of it. And sorry, I'll let you go in a second. Um the <laughs> you 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 made me think of something um when you spoke about population because I've been reading a lot about obviously the the urban at the moment and a lot of people are speaking, yes, okay there has been a tipping point now where most of humanity currently lives in cities and by twenty fifty it's gonna be like a massive, mm-hmm. you know, the vast majority of humans are going to live in cities. But so often this is discussed as from a, from a human-centered way, right? So cities are certainly where most humans are currently. But as you mentioned earlier, the number of chickens, the number of cows, you know, there are other spaces and other areas of metabolism and consumption that need to be taken into consideration, right? Like you said, you can't consider the slaughterhouse without you can't consider the backyard chicken without also thinking about the slaughterhouse. And I think the same thing goes for for other animals. What happens if we start to consider where the concentration of other populations are? What what emerges, right? If we start to think about what are chickens eating and we start from the urban metabolism of a, not the urban metabolism, the, the factory metabolism or the, and obviously the, the urban will be implicated therein, but we always tend to just privilege, I think, the growth of human populations in thinking about mm. the year 2050. But what does 2050 mean for chicken populations or cow populations? Where do we, where do we project that to be for them and what they eat as well? Anyway, I could go on forever. I'm sorry. <laughs> like in my in my editing of these latest uh, episodes, I'm realizing I'm just like speaking and blabbering on and asking like 12 questions at once. I imagine. I imagine I I would not want to be interviewed by me because I'd just be like, you asked me five questions. That's too much. Okay. Let me take a moment to say thank you so much for being on the show. Before you go, could you tell us a little bit about where people can find you, what you're currently working on, and uh, maybe some contact information if you're on Twitter or anything like that?
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, it's been really nice. And as I kind of Work these ideas out. It's really nice to to talk to you and um, kind of get those questions actually. And be like, oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry for any ramblings. They're entirely uh, on me. Um, Not nice so, yeah, so
1: apologise th- to me about ramblings. Come <laughs> on.
0: <laughs> I mean, my ramblings. <laughs> yeah. So you, you can find um, some some writing and some some book more about my project on my website, which is catherinecmoliver.wordpress.com. Um, I've got a profile on the University of cambridge's website um you can find by googling Catherine oliver uh, and you can follow me on twitter at katie k-a-t-i-e c-m oliver uh, and i'm on instagram at vegan geographies and i think that's all of the things that i'm on
1: <laughs> awesome well thank you so much for joining me today uh, it's been a really wonderful conversation and i hope that we can keep talking more in future
0: yeah thank you so much
1: A huge thank you to katherine for being a fantastic guest now in this episode's animal highlight i was thinking hmm, which animal should i focus on and of course there was only one answer to that question and that is the chicken or chickens uh now in preparing for this highlight i was really trying to find a cool like quote or excerpt that spoke a bit to chickens and their ways of living in the world uh, and actually, the more I searched and looked for chickens in the city, the more I was just coming up with images of chickens being eaten, chickens being farmed, uh, chickens being sold and butchered in markets. And that wasn't what I wanted to focus on here. Here, I wanted to highlight how amazing and awesome chickens are. But I did come across this one pretty cool excerpt from Paul Oster's book, I Thought My Father Was God and Other True Tales from NPR's National Story Project and it goes a little something like this. As I was walking down Staten Street early one Sunday morning, I saw a chicken a few yards ahead of me. I was walking faster than the chicken, so I gradually caught up. By the time we approached 18th Avenue, I was close behind. The chicken turned south on 18th. At the fourth house along, it turned at the walk, hopped up the front steps, and rapped sharply on the metal storm door with its beak. After a moment, the door opened, and the chicken went in. That's a reflection from Alinda Elegant in Portland, Oregon. And I just love that little excerpt because it shows the, a dynamic relationship between someone behind that door and a chicken who is navigating their way through the city, which is just a really cool thing. And it shouldn't be that surprising. Chickens are really, really intelligent. They have extremely complex social lives. They can remember north of 100 individual faces. They see in full color. They have at least 24 different vocalizations. And this is possibly one of the coolest facts there is about chickens. And uh, I hope it'll come in handy the next time you're at a dinner party. Chickens are the closest living relative to T-Rex, to the mighty T-Rex. Chickens also, of course, really enjoy dust farts and are excellent mothers. And they can live to be 11 years old. They're often killed only at about 40 days in industrial operations, but they can live long, complex, and beautiful lives. So the next time you see a chicken in the city or a picture of a chicken in the city, maybe stop to give them some thoughts and to think of their long histories and how incredible and amazing they are. All right, that's it, everybody. Once again, a huge thank you to Catherine for being an amazing guest, to Animals and Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics, Apple for sponsoring this episode, to Jeremy John for the logo and Gordon Clark for the bed music. This is The Animal Turn with me, Claudia Hüttenfelder.
0: For more great iRoar podcasts, visit at That's i r o a r p o d. dot com. <sighs>